The scriptures from the gospel that will be anchoring today's teaching and is going to be in the gospel of John 19. So you can find a place there. With regard to where we had last week's emphasis, which was the triumphal entry, we took a text of scripture that was known well in those days and something that was fulfilled in Jesus coming into Jerusalem and the particular animal that we had focused on was a, a donkey. It was the foal of a donkey, an animal that hadn't probably yet reached four years of age, a donkey that had been marked, a destiny that that donkey would fulfill and satisfy even according to not only Zechariah 9.9, but also, as many of you know, satisfied in the book of Daniel. In the ninth chapter of Daniel, we are also told, well, let me bring you there, specifically to this event on the 24th verse. And one of the things that is to be noted with regard to the particular unique design of the donkey, even though we attribute it as being very stubborn, it is highly intelligent and it is also very faithful to its master. In this particular passage in Daniel, which is the ninth chapter in the 24th verse, Daniel is given a prophecy and he pens, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. There has been in times past a mystery to what this means. And in code language, it could be noted as an enigma, it's a mystery. The way in which 70 weeks is outlined and what does it mean as it projects to the future. Scholars for years had pondered it, but there was a Bible-loving, faithful, believing scholar. And in the year of about, I believe, published in... Um, 1895, about 121 years ago, his name is Sir Robert Anderson, and you can look him up and read about him. But he took his love and passion with regard to the reading of the word and some skills with regarding mathematics and understanding Hebrew numerology and he was able to take this passage, which had been an enigma, a mystery, or if you would, something that was a cipher, it was a code that seemingly could not be broken, even cast doubt seemingly on the accuracy of the scriptures until God marked him. What is the marking that I was referring to on the donkey? the foal of a donkey, its mother, what was the marking? It's very interesting, but as many of you know, if you've looked at a donkey, hovered over one, there is from the crown of its head to its rump a line. It goes all the way to the back where the tail begins. And across its shoulders is a line that intersects it and creates a cross. It's unique, and every donkey has it. Some breeds of donkeys have thicker hair, more difficult to see. That may be true about some of us. You got a thicker mane of hair than some of us that don't. And your mark may be more difficult to see. But the illustration is, is that nature by God's design, speaks of a divine author. And when you realize that Jesus sat on that 
foal of a donkey, showing both his power over nature, it also shows how intimately he designed nature to speak of him and the course that he would take. The cross on that donkey would have spoke precisely to the occasion that not only he had been born, but to satisfy his mission of dying for the sins of the world. Now, the reason that we look back on Daniel right now is that the precise timing of that triumphal entry is calculated based on this scripture. Therefore, if you really want to study the numerical values, then you'd go back and reference this British theologian, The Seventy Weeks. He was noted for it. In particular, his book was The Coming Prince. And so, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. This was Jesus anointed above his fellow. He was anointed with the oil of joy that even in tears that he wept coming into the city and over the city, it was with joy that he would satisfy the heart of his father to save a God-rejecting world, in particular, a Christ-rejecting world. It continues to say, Know therefore and understand in verse 25 that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, which there was. Remember, Zechariah would have been penned at about the same time, that was Zechariah 9.9, that Daniel would have been penning this. There was a remnant in Jerusalem, that had been sent forth to build it, and there were those who were in captivity in Babylon, Daniel and his crew. They were contemporaries in what they were saying about the very same thing. Daniel had a foreknowledge given to him based in a ciphering or an enigma, a mystery, and Zechariah would put the punctuation mark on it by identifying specifically event known as the triumphal entry, that week that prepared ultimately the Lord in a time of his weakness to be given strength to move towards that cross. And so when we again look at this idea of the enigma, the mystery, there was actually a machine that was made in the very early 30s when warfare demanded secrecy The Germans created a machine in which, known as the Enigma machine, it would hide codes from being intercepted and understood by enemy forces. So it created actually a whole unique area of warfare that ultimately required from the enemy forces, that would be the allies, how do we break this? How do we figure out what they're saying? and what their next plan is. In essence, that's what this particular gentleman from Great Britain did. He was able to, by God's anointing, break the code. And as you look at this, though, even without calculating the numbers per se, it says no, verse 25, and therefore understand that from the beginning, or from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, Until Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The streets shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Verse 26, coming to the point of where we are today, celebrating the act that preceded this event today. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. 
that speaks of the Friday just passing, the time in which the Lord would be crucified, and to be an offering for each one of us because of God's love that he would quote to a gentleman named Nicodemus with regard to for Nicodemus and Enigma, how can this be that a man be born again? Can he go back into his mother's womb? Jesus would say, you must be born again by spirit. And so what we will find is that as these two books of the Bible, Daniel and Zechariah find great agreement. One from a foreign nation, and the second in what you would call the homeland, the place that Jesus will reign and rule and the place that he was rejected. You know, some people would say, okay, the cross, that's intriguing. Does it really speak? Well, it in fact did speak and still does speak. And some would say, a mule can speak, a donkey can speak, two different species with regard to that. But in Numbers chapter 22, verse 22, there was a prophet that came to bear down upon Israel. He was paid to pronounce a curse upon the children of Israel. His name was Balaam. And he rode a donkey, a donkey that would have had per se that exact cross on its back. And God allowed that donkey to speak to him because he was on his way to curse God's people. And it's a fascinating story. The donkey was refusing to take Balaam where he wanted to go. The donkey in Jerusalem was on the course to take Messiah exactly where he needed to go. So hard was Balaam's heart that the Lord allowed that donkey to speak. And he spoke. He said, why are you keep beating me? <laughs> That's what Balaam was doing. The donkey ran him into the wall and then just stopped. And when he came to his senses, unseemingly a senseless donkey, the angel of the Lord said, had he not stopped, I would have slain you. And the idea there, the picture, is that God doesn't want anyone to prematurely miss the blessings if they're destined to simply be hurling curses and to be a curse. The fascinating picture is that as Jesus had faithfully moved in accordance with prophecy, and Daniel speaks of this, his death, and ultimately in the same area, there was going to be a desolation determined. That would happen in AD 70. When as Jesus was explaining to the awe the disciples had over the beautiful city and the temple, he would say, not one stone should be left upon another. Prophecy is very, very important for you to be anchoring your faith in because what God has said is what God will do. And you never have to question it, even though you may be in a time in which ciphering and enigmas are stirring you into doubts. Is God with me? The question is, he is, but the question is, are you with him? Are you with God? Are you with God based on his word of truth? In Isaiah 53, it's familiar, I'm going to ask you to turn there with me. Isaiah 53. So if Daniel was given the word of God at least 500 years in advance, and Zechariah at least 500 years in advance, Isaiah in the 53rd chapter, let me get there with you, is going to tell us something in advance as well. 
700 years familiar with this. He was oppressed in verse 7, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, speaking of where he was held in two different times, both by civil authorities and military authorities, and taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation, for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made, verse 9, his grave with the wicked but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And so when you coordinate all of these words of prophecy, it is so very encouraging because in fact, as Isaiah is declaring, this explains the event prior to him being placed in the grave and being ruthlessly judged. He was an innocent man. He had done no wickedness but he would be found on Golgotha between two criminals who had been lawfully appointed to die. And it indicates that he would yet be placed among the rich. That mystery is solved here when we move back to the Gospel of John in chapter 19. And I want you to be there with me right now. We're going to pick it up in 31. Verse 31 of chapter 19 in John tells us, in essence, the event that would happen on what has been noted as Good Friday. Therefore, in verse 31, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was the high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then it says in verse 32, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him, verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. The criminals to his right and left would die in the breaking of their bones. They would no longer be able to give themselves an artificial resuscitation up and down on bent knees on a little post beneath their feet. And therefore, they would no longer be able to breathe. But what we are told is that the satisfaction of God had been effective. And prior to that, in verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, Verse 30 again, he says, it is finished and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The other men would give up their breath. Jesus would give up his spirit, knowing that what he had done completely satisfied the requirements of a holy God for the sins of an unrighteous world. And so when we continue to look at this in terms of how this all plays out, it says this with regard to that event. As they came to him, as he was found dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. We sang a song today when true love died. It's a beautiful song because it vividly portrays, literally, that the Son of God 
the author of love, the giver of life, was one who gave himself to the last drop of blood. And he did so with resignation and purpose. Though at times we say his life was taken, he actually gave up his life. He committed in satisfying his father's pleasure, his spirit just dismissed it because he had power and authority to do it. And that's really important because very often what we say is he was murdered. Well, he was at the hands of those who knew how to murder and take life. But the important part of this is that he gave his life. There's a big difference between somebody taking a life and somebody giving themselves their life. And that's what the Lord did. It says this as it continues, this soldier then, 34, one, pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. Today the Lord would say, with the evidence prophetically given that you can trace back and study, this is that you might believe. What has been shared in the word of God, what accounts for the life of Jesus, the Son of God, is that you might believe. It's one thing to say, I have faith, and I use it. But remember, Jesus wasn't altogether impressed by faith if it was not married with belief. He did many amazing things miracles and yet there were communities and individuals who in what they believed was an expression of faith really were not believing in the faithful one in what he had done and without belief no mighty works could be done the mighty works of god and for the church today is the result of us being assembled and in our assembly exercising faith contributing the gifts, we are those that say with assurance, we believe. It's a wonderful time to live when so much of the scriptures have been allowed to be understood, and especially in those key areas of prophecy. If you knew today what would happen tomorrow, you could make some pretty awesome plans, couldn't you? Or you could avoid some pretty difficult situations. God asks that faith be invested in what it is that you can't see, but what it is that you can believe if you choose. And that's the important thing for all of us. In this account of the scriptures that is a gospel message, what we see is the word was satisfied. In Zechariah, in chapter 13, we're basically given that insight that as well happened, that was precisely what Jesus would say to his disciples, that he would be betrayed, that not only in his betrayal, he would be taken into a judgment, he would be killed, but on the third day, he would rise again. And it's interesting because his disciples heard that multiple times and yet had no comprehension. It would seem as though for them it was a ciphering. It was enigma. What does he mean by this? It was only after the fact that they could then reinvest faith in what had been foretold. And Jesus made that very clear by doing what? Clearly presenting himself following the crucifixion, following his burial. The tomb was opened. And he met them with a message of hope. And he gave them a directive on what they were to do. They were to share the good word. But notice this, this detail which is important, for these things were done that the scriptures should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken, and again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Why were his bones not permitted to be broken? Not that I know the science of medicine, 
But I do know that within the bones and in the marrow in particular is the production of the red blood cells. And it is in those red blood cells that ultimately life is continually being perpetuated by the renewal of the red blood cells in our system. And therefore, what this is symbolically speaking of is there's no break in the effectiveness and the effectualness of God's blood. When there's a break, there's a stall. There's something that now then has to be remedied. The body rushes to that wound site to take care of it. But Jesus' bones would not be broken, and that's to give us an assurance that no matter what life may be doing in breaking you in, the blood of the Lord is as potent and as effectual and as permanent as anything that you could ever lay hands on. But the Lord wants us to know that life is hard and we will experience times of brokenness. Though he was killed, though he gave up his life, it never at all created a problem with what we also qualify as grace to you and to me. It's a great picture. Most importantly, though, it's satisfying perfectly what had been prophesied. As it continues, here are the other players, though, that are necessary to understand what this day as well represents. For remember that we already know that he was going to be judged with the wicked, yet he was innocent and yet he would reside in a place of the rich. And so in verse 38 of chapter 19, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And in verse 39, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Verse 41, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid, so there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. And in fact, this is true. This particular narration by John was exactly portrayed in imagery through these prophets, these voices, Jesus didn't have to leave, if you would, a statement of what the disciples were to do with him when he would meet his death and render up his spirit to the Lord. Because it's never about what we have to do with God. The question is, what does God get to do with you? How will the Lord come into your life in a manner and way in which his effectiveness and his grace speaks the message of the resurrection to those who see you in the crises that you're going through? We would all like to change certain circumstances about our crises. The bottom line is we are all destined to magnify the Lord in some crises. Every one of us has a different crisis, but the requirement is the same. And that is, in fact, what these disciples came to understand. They were leaders, spiritual leaders in their community. They were those who had great reputation. They were scholars to do what they did to present themselves to be men who would be found taking down the body of Jesus and making a place for him would mark them 
It would mark them as much as the donkey has been marked. They would never be able to hold office again in the way that was familiar to them, comfortable. They would be saying in stepping out to move up that ladder to remove the Lord, those nails that weren't smoothly round, they were square pegs, they were pounded in to his flesh. And that would have to be with precision removed. I can't even imagine the technical difficulty there, only knowing that these men said on this day, we will do something for God, for God has done something for us. He changed their heart. Nicodemus, who was acknowledged as one of the great scholars of his day, couldn't even have come up with simple answers for the Lord in his time of questioning God. But God touched his heart, and his academic mind changed to be a spiritual mind, and one that was so boldly connecting with God now that he said, what is my life? What is my career? What does anything matter except that which concerns God? And by the way, I believe when they removed him from the cross, prepared his body for the tomb, in their hearts they had believed the word of the Lord. He's going to rise again. The narration continues right now because we find what is emphasized on this day, and that is after three days he would arise. On the third day of the week, verse 1 of chapter 20, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Her enthusiasm is being documented, but right now her ignorance in this matter is also being cited. She didn't get everything about what Jesus had said to but she does run with enthusiasm and fear. What have they done with Jesus? Peter, therefore, in verse 3, went out and the other disciples and were going to the tomb. And so they ran together. And the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. It would indicate that John was a faster athlete. But notice this, and he stooping down and looking in saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. They ran to go and find out this enigma. What? A stone rolled? The body of the Lord removed? What? It for them was something that they would have to, if you would, solve in ciphering. It was even a code to them, but they'd been told they just hadn't been informed on the methodology by which Jesus had informed them. Very often we find ourselves at times wondering, what is the Lord doing? And why didn't he tell me that he was going to do it this way? Why did he do it some other way? Why didn't he ask for my opinion on what would be easier for me? It's kind of funny because these disciples had been together solidly for at least we know the tenure of three years. And they also had, if you would, competitive spirits with regard to who was going to be closest to the Lord. Who was the Lord really favoring the most 
out of all of them. But the Lord brought both of them together in contrasting personalities, and you get to see where one with a greater zeal to get to that place hesitates at the threshold. We have some people that come to church with great zeal, but there's a hesitancy at the threshold. That's a picture of what is happening in these days today, realizing that there is obviously a need to connect with God because the world is becoming disconnected. But that threshold is the hardest place for some people to cross. In essence, there's a cross at that threshold. It's easier at times for people to recognize on the back of a donkey than it is to realize in the assembly of God's people. We've been marked, each one of us, preciously marked. Jesus didn't die for the donkey. He died for you and for me. And we're his sheep. The illustration that we are to see right now is that as facts unfold and science can confirm it, the Lord has done precisely what he said he will do. And the Lord will not be any less precise in doing what he says he shall do for his church and for each one of us today in the ways that deeply we are wanting him to effectively, and I would say even efficiently, handle our lives. When you look at what they see in the tomb, you see precision. This was something that was divinely... Did Jesus fold these? Did Jesus take care of his linens? Well, it's rather silent. It's an enigma. How did this happen? All you need to know is that God kept his son, and his son is going to keep you. If your life is in disorder, the Lord is saying... I ordered even my garments to be neatly in the place where I no longer occupy, for the place that I desire to be is in your heart, and I will put that in order. I'll change the order of your domestic mess. I'll change the order of your vocational hardship. I will change, literally, the order of your life to put each footstep of your faith in a correct alignment that best serves me. If the Lord can get a donkey to serve him, both back in Numbers 22, 22, to speak on behalf of him, to save one who was against him, and one that would be disposed to carry the Lord into Jerusalem, then he can do anything with you and I. If we let him, why should a donkey get all the credit? But that is not by any means demeaning the animal's kingdom. It's that all creation speaks of something very specific that God authored, that no arguments could be made when a man or woman has not made the decision to believe according to faith. Today the Lord would say, do you believe? In just the passages that were rendered, do you believe in what I've done? We hear of facts and science. Do you believe in facts? Do you believe in science? Can you take facts and science, things now that have been deciphered, the enigma no longer there, can you take it and apprehend me because of it? Can you take a step closer to me by stepping away from the mirror long enough to see me and not yourself, your circumstance? This visitation to the tomb was real. The tomb today is one that you can visit. And it's a very interesting visitation indeed. Your imagination really does have to be constrained on what it meant on that particular day when the body of the Lord was placed in there. But your imagination doesn't need to be stretched beyond anything other than saying, I believe, Lord when you realize that these men who were authentic historical 
figures and giants in the faith and ones to be believed would say we were there and he wasn't. But they will see him again. Very shortly the scriptures identify. For as yet, verse 9, they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. The scriptures are important to know with regard to what God has said. And they had heard it, but they hadn't really deeply put it into their hearts. The disciples went away again to their own homes. Today, we get to go away to our own homes. But when we do so, will we say, it was just a fine story. It was just a wonderful rendering. It was a revisit of an old theme. Carry on, Pastor. Good job, church. See you next Easter. Oh, wait, Christmas comes before. We'll see you at Christmas time. See, the church needs to awaken and not slumber. We have a purpose to be here, and it is to worship overtly a living God. Because there's a world yet to change. And all we are really is in a cycle in which only the uniforms have been changed. The disposition of men and women and children is the same. God's working with the same kinds of people today as he did back then. And if he can touch them, he can touch us. And if time is short, which we are understanding in Revelation, then why waste time giving the invitation, the pronouncement of fact and science? We don't want to waste that time. Mary is introduced to us in the next verses. She is there, different renderings in the gospel that emphasize different aspects of it. But it says, Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping in verse 11. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. What before was her zeal and her alarm sending her to the disciples, which she ran, they then hearing her running to that place, she comes back for another visit. It may be that she, in fact, ran with them, but what we see right now is her looking in to, for her, the mystery of the absence of the Lord's body, because she still wanted to deal with Jesus on his former terms. She wanted that. It says, as she wept, stooping down, looking into the tomb, verse 12, she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. It says nothing about that concerning the disciples. It says that for her, the appearance of these angelic majesties were evident. Were they there all along and they couldn't see him? Well, we don't know. What we do know is that for her, for her faith, she was permitted to see these angels at his head, at his feet. If you look into the picture of the Old Testament given in the Ark of the Covenant, there would be two angelic beings carved and coated in gold. They're noted for having their wings arching over across the mercy seat, touching as they're bowed in reverence. Their picture of this event, all the way back then when Moses was told to make this as a manifestation that would represent the presence of God, it is satisfied in this picture as those angels being at the head and of the feet of where Jesus was once laid. It's pretty incredible. It's a precise picture. And it says that where this body of Jesus had lain, when they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? 
And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. She saw the two angels in white sitting, one at the head, at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And I'm reviewing this. And then they said to her again, Why, woman, are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. She's questioned by them, why are you weeping? She turns around, sees Jesus, and it indicates that she doesn't yet quite get it, doesn't quite yet understand him. Notice, though, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Now that's a big heart. For a woman to say in this, if you've taken him away, if you know where he's at, tell me, and I will take him. And it's actually a very precious statement of really where we ought to be. If you know where he's at, if you know where he has been, where do you want to take him? Where would you take Jesus? Jesus would say in an event coming very shortly, the Great Commission, I want you to take me into all the world. That's what I want you to do. I'm not in the tomb. I've come out of it. And now I've come into you. And I want you to take me into all the world. But her question is precious because she's willing to say, I would do that. I'm willing to handle him. I crave, like Nicodemus, and like Joseph of Arimathea, I crave the body of the Lord. The scriptures tell us that we are the spiritual body of the Lord and he is our head. That's why there is even a distinction made in this tomb, the head that was carefully wrapped to separate from the body in which those linens were folded to. The connection is the spirit of God. But in this particular interaction right now, supposing him to be the gardener, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. In verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, and that he had spoken these things to her. She really becomes the first evangelist of seeing the risen Savior, and she's the one that gets to publish the great news. Women are exalted in this passage. Their enthusiasm, their sincerity, their heart, their compassion, the guys had spent three years. And in this one moment, Mary was willing to be spent being the first publisher of this great news that now she was not able to argue. So evident was it to her that it basically shows her in a state of worship, just cleaving, clinging worship which he suspends her from doing until ultimately he is satisfied in the leaving of this earth. The conclusion to this, which again is affirmed in the witness of two or more, is on verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. As we conclude, 
and we see that he revealed himself to them in a time of great fear, he says once again, peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. That's a great way to conclude a great message of hope. The Holy Spirit is the evidence of the Lord's faithfulness to never leave us nor forsake us. And we cannot live a life for the Lord if it is absent of the confession to have the need of God in our lives, within our hearts. And that's the evangel, the message that we were saved for such a time as this and for a life that really is to be lived enormously and innocently, fearlessly, courageously. There's a little time left. What will you do with the little time that's left? What are we going to do with the little time that remains before the trump of God is heard and the Lord calls us up? Oh, that's great that we're encouraged that we get called up, but are we leaving anybody behind? Because we didn't give the message. Peace he gives to us in a time in which great trouble seems to be before us. And solutions seem to be completely not even working. An enigma. But the understanding of what may be confusing to you is found in the word. And the Lord doesn't want your life spent another day without using you for somebody else's day. So be in prayer, church. Be encouraged. Pass the facts along. Irrefutable. You can't have information that precedes an event by the hundreds of years that the scriptures document to the precise day of its occurrence. And so for us, be encouraged, he's risen. We serve a risen Savior.